You are now listening to the Hunter's Advantage Podcast. Christian Babcock, the host of the Hunter's Advantage podcast. And what we do on the podcast is we talk to disruptive companies in the outdoor industry, talk about innovative hunting solutions that are changing the landscape, as well as offer you tips and strategy for more successful hunts. All in all, I just want to help you become a better hunter by providing you with high quality knowledge and information that you can trust. Stay tuned. Christian Babcock here of the Hunter's Advantage podcast. Today on episode 71, we were joined by Hank Forrester of the National Deer Association. He serves as the director of hunting for the National Deer Association. In the podcast, we cover topics like hunting mentorship, recruitment, retaining hunters, um, getting youth involved in hunting, and some of the roadblocks and challenges that we're just facing as a hunting culture. I think you guys will enjoy this episode of the podcast, and let's get into it. listening and watching thanks for jumping back on the hunter's advantage podcast this is episode number 71 today i'm joined by hank forster of the nda hank for thanks for uh jumping on with me today oh thanks for having me it's a pleasure so for people i've had um i've had lindsey thomas i've had matt ross i've had kip adams i've had a few of the nda guys on the podcast but not under the new banner of the nda back when i was doing these podcasts everyone it was still called the qdma i think we're still gonna have to do some training on people getting the new name but for people that aren't familiar on the podcast can you give us a little bit of insight into what the nda is and and what your role is at the nda sure so uh the national deer association was formed last year uh with a merger of qdma and the national deer alliance the quality deer management association the national deer alliance Oddly enough, I, I've been with QDMA and now NDA for, um, I guess, almost eight years. So I was there when the QDMA uh, launched the National Deer Alliance. It was called for in some of our um, whitetail symposiums, uh, just trying to figure out better ways to advocate and, and protect the whitetail deer. And so we did launch this National Deer Alliance and advocacy for, uh, like wing and then uh you know 2020 and and things changed leadership changed and and we decided in fact to merge again and uh and brought on the staff of the national deer alliance to join us at the national deer association so um really made sense uh, from many levels but uh it, it really makes sense to have that advocacy wing as part of uh you know the all overall organization and, and came with great leadership so we're super happy um, myself, I'm the director of hunting for the National Deer Association. So uh, really oversee R3, um, really uh, anything to educate or inspire a new hunter to get a field a, uh, and, you know, inspire a, a current hunter to mentor or pass on, you know, their knowledge and passion to new hunters, as well as, um, you know, advocate on a, on a national level for, you know, better opportunities and, and easier entrance of, you know, to uh, hunting, but, uh, you know, also um, you know, work on a lot of educational resources, uh, try to educate new hunters and, and, you know, hunters that are, you know, beginning their journey, but really, um, I view it as, as we're just there to build confidence and really, you know, tell these people that hunting is an attainable, um, you know, activity for anybody who wants to bite it off and try it. And so we want to provide good resources and, and that confidence to really get them to, to go afield. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think, one of the things that you guys do really well is focus around recruitment. Um, how encouraged are you? And do you kind of think the tides are shifting? I know for decades, we're kind of seeing this decline of hunters in um, just participating in the sport and the traditions and kind of, you guys have been all in on the recruitment thing. How do you, how do you feel like that's going just from a kind of a cultural perspective right now? Yeah. From a, from a, you know, a 40,000 foot big picture level, I, I think I'm pretty excited about the direction we're going. I'm not ready to like throw a, you know, celebratory banner, like mission accomplished. Um, you know, I, I, I think there's still, you know, issues that are going to prove that, you know, it's going to be hard to have, you know, larger percentages of the American population hunting. And, and for the listeners who don't, don't know this, you know, 2016, we got a big national survey on, hunting participation. They also survey 
fishing and, and wildlife um, associated recreation. And so um, they said there were 11 and a half million licensed hunters in the United States. Eight million of those were deer hunters. Um, they were 90% male and 97% Caucasian. Um, so that's like four and a half percent of the U.S. population today that buys a license in any given year. And we have to understand that's an issue in itself, um, you know, to be a vast minority of the population, something we hold dear. And, and we really rely on this public opinion uh, to to tell us whether we can continue to do this or not, you know, in, in the grand scheme of things. But, you know, with what we're saying, these societal trends or whatever, um, we've never recorded higher public approval for hunting deer and turkey for food. Now, if you put like bear in front of that and you, you know, you start to deal with the, you know, New Jersey or Washington state cat ladies or whatever, some right. people, you know, like to call them, but um, you know, deer and turkey for some reason, like they're in our backyards, they must be like viewed as a pest. I saw um, Taylor Chamberlain who hunts a lot of urban deer around DC. Uh, he said a, a property owner, well, he was at knocking on doors the other day, called him uh, rats with legs. But I mean, there is just this like, this value of deer because of their numbers and their accessibility and people see them, I think it, it kind of decreases that awe in them and people are kind of okay. And, you know, we're de dealing with a population that has, is off an all time high, but still may be as high as they've ever been on this continent minus 10 years ago or something. And that's due to, you know, habitat changes, CRP reductions, that kind of stuff. We lost uh, some of the deer population, but not a, not a terrible problem. Um, but then you have this, this, uh, societal trends of like caring where your food comes from. You know, Michael Pollan wrote books like Omnivore's Dilemma, where it went over like some meals. And then he realized like the one he actually hunted and foraged for was probably the most responsible one. Um, you know, and that kind of set off the trends where, you know, the earth fairs and the whole foods and knowing where your food comes from. And I think, you know, people want to be self-reliant and sustainability and, and, you know, all those buzzwords and, it worked for us for our field to fork program. I mean, I think it's just working for the future of hunting. And honestly, what's making the biggest boom, uh, I believe, and I don't really have like any empirical data to back this up, except, you know, just personal experience. I can't tell you how many people come to us who want to learn to hunt today. And they say that they saw meat eater on Netflix. Mm. And, and what that is, is it's, we're getting hunting content in front of like, everyone in the United States, like meat eater is trending as a top program on Netflix, which probably the majority of Americans have in their living room today. So it's the first time that we've ever gotten quality hunting responsible content in front of everyone in America. And they're, they're seeing this and it's piquing their interest. And so I think that really the Netflix effect is probably what's helping us. And we, we've got all this great content that people can find and digest. And it's not just on ESPN on Saturday mornings anymore. You know, I mean, it's just, it's out there. People can find it. So we get a lot of people who say, you know, Hey, I, I'm, I'm interested in this. I've been interested in learning to hunt for a long time. I don't know where to get started. And uh, you know, that's really what we're trying to provide. But I think, you know, we, we've seen some bleeps in growth in hunting participation. A lot of the press during 2020 was like, Oh, the pandemic's created hunters. We really don't have the data to to link those hunting was actually growing before the pandemic hmm. um slightly so we're, we're we're waiting on some more studies there but um i just think you know societal trends and everything we're, we're in a good spot we've obviously got to continue um to work on ways to get more people afield to to give them the confidence and 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 honestly i think it really comes down to there's there's research out there that says there there may be as many as 25 million americans who want to learn to hunt or plan to hunt one day but they're sitting on the sideline so that's twice as many as that are currently doing it but they're not really i don't believe they're entertaining this as an attainable goal like it's, hunting is perceived as daunting from those who don't participate and for us who had like family members or friends like you know the value of that but if you don't have that and you don't know anyone who hunts, you're probably just sitting there thinking this isn't something I can do. Um, there's obviously hurdles to jump. And I think a lot of them are, are kind of, some are real, but a lot of them are just perceived, but you got to jump a few barriers, but there's, there's 8 million Americans doing this. I'd argue that probably they can too. Yeah, absolutely. I saw a little bit of, like you're saying, no empirical data, but I saw a little bit of anecdotal evidence, at least from my wife during COVID when, um, all this 
all this food shortage happened. You couldn't go get meat from the store. Um, none of these things were available. And you talk a little bit about sustainability. I mean, someone like my wife who's okay with hunting um, is actually interested in it now because of the lifestyle that it provides lean meat that I know exactly where it came from being able to eat something that was literally breathing eight hours ago. Um, it's, it's interesting how those people that aren't interested in hunting at all, these kind of macro trends in society and culture are kind of pushing people that way, whether it's, you want to raise your own animals and stuff, or you want to go hunt them because they're so plentiful. They're so bountiful out there. Like you're saying. Yeah, no, I mean, that was a, that was a major, you know, eye-opening experience to a lot of people. And I can't help but think back on like that American Preppers TV show or whatever back in the day and they're yeah. interviewing the people in the start and they're, oh, you know, why are you doing this? And they're like, uh, global pandemic, you know, and I would, I, you know, 10 years ago, I'd have been like, what a crazy person, you know, mm -hmm. but look at, look at where we are today. So, uh, yeah, the, the, the self-reliance, um, you know, that, that, I think that really became, you know, popped up in, in the, in the brain sphere during COVID and during those shortages. And we really haven't recovered from a lot of that, you know, a lot of the slaughterhouses and, um, you know, you know, big processing houses where people take their livestock have been booked up and backed up since then. And I mean, I even see more and more people starting processing businesses and stuff, not only for wild game, but for livestock, because, it obviously showed that there's more demand and, and people are willing to look local for that as well. Well, it's interesting because it's opened at least my wife's eyes a little bit into how meat is dealt with. Like I worked at a grocery store for about a little local grocery store um, for two and a half years in high school. And I watched how they actually butchered the meat, how that meat came in, how it was processed. And then it was eventually packaged. Cause I'm, I'm stocking it and stuff. And I come in one day with a cooler full of deer quarters my wife's like, I, I can't believe we're going to eat that. Like, that's disgusting. It's sitting on ice. And I'm like, oh, oh, you should see what the grocery store looks like. If you think this is disgusting, you should really see what it, how it's actually processed at a, at one of those places. That's interesting. I, you know, when we, we started field to fork, like adult hunter recruitment from the farmer's market, you know, the coolest part to me and, 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 you know, maybe what made it unique is we went and set up a table at the farmer's market with samples of venison and we got to be the tip of the spear and recruitment of new audiences, you know, and it didn't seem like anything crazy to me. I watched a, a local chef make ricotta cheese as like a demonstration at the farmer's market one Saturday. And I was like, man, we should bring in a deer, uh, but never got that off the ground, but we decided we don't start this hunter recruitment program. So I was like, I bet you if they're willing to allow us to bring in a deer and cut it up on the table, um, they'll let us come in and like set up a booth to recruit hunters and give venison samples and stuff. So we, we did. And like that, that was my favorite part. I mean, how many people come to you and they're like, I don't like venison. It's gamey. And I'm like, well, I really don't think it is. And if you'll try this piece of backstrap or sausage or whatever we were dishing, like, I think you maybe whoever cooked it for you didn't know how to cook it. Um, but it wasn't it wasn't handled the same way that that steak and that cellophane is. And it's also there's that disconnect to just going and picking it up on the shelf in the grocery store and not not, you know, taking ownership of what's going on there. But um, but I often wonder, like, I would like to do more comparison of the different ways that meat get to your your freezer, I guess, or your you know or table, because. I think a lot of the things that people say, oh, like this venison is different. It's like, well, it wasn't hung for 30 days. It wasn't killed with a with a bolt gun to the head, you know, all the stuff that people like to talk about. But uh, long story short, I've often wondered about what it was like on the back end of that. And if we if we took a deer and we took a, a cow and did the same thing, how how close would they be? I mean, I understand fat contents and that kind of stuff are never going to be the same. But uh, yeah, but it's interesting to hear your perspective on that for sure. Yeah, we actually got to have our, <clears throat> we got a community group at church and, and a lot of them were like, I wouldn't say anti-hunters, but people that had absolutely no interest in consuming any wild game meat. That's weird. I'll get it from Whole Foods. I'll get all these sorts of things. We invited all of them over one day because we would just do a family meal like once a month. And I cooked, uh, my favorite way to cook deer is just chicken fried backstrap. That's one of my favorite ways to cook it. God, it's amazing. My wife made mashed potatoes. I mean, I had these people hand and fist just scarfing this stuff down, and I didn't tell anybody beforehand. I probably should have. It just it wasn't malicious. It didn't cross my mind. And everyone's like, "What is this?" As as their the two stacks plates stacks were just gone of this chicken fried backstrap, and um, I was like, "Oh, that's that's venison." And I'm like, "Oh my god!" I had people going, "I don't mean to be rude, but like, can you send me home with some of this stuff?" And I'm like, 
Yeah, like, yeah, I, pull, I was pulling out grocery sacks, dropping uh, ground and, and backstrap in there. I'm like, here you go. And like, I sent like three or four people home with meat. That oh, yeah. Day. Yeah. It was awesome. Some people call it venison diplomacy, but I mean, you created advocates right there. And that's one of the easiest ways to, you know, soften people up on hunting or, or maybe even recruit, you know, a buddy who wants to hunt or whatever. Um, you know, I find sharing meal is a good way to approach that. And that's obviously what we were doing at the farmer's market. But mm-hmm. yeah, I love serving wild game to, uh, you know, people who, who don't know if they like it or haven't had it. Um, I, I mean, I obviously work for a deer organization, but most recently for me, I've been smoking a lot of wild turkey breasts. Mm. And I've realized that these wild turkey breasts are actually better than the store-bought butter balls when you really get down to it. And I, I'm shocked myself. Um, but now that I'm going on like three years in a row where I smoked wild turkeys and regular turkeys and the wild turkey is better. And, yeah. and the group, like the first year, I didn't tell anybody that was the wild turkey and they ate it first because a few of my family prefer not to eat it, you know. And so I didn't tell them. And uh, I don't know what it is, but those wild turkey breasts are better. Yeah, that's, I agree with you a hundred percent. Um, so we talked about a little bit about recruitment in the beginning and kind of the NDA's uh, commitment to that. What are some of the biggest challenges that you see overall in hunter recruitment right now, whether it be access or, or the lack of ground or licenses or lack of mentors? What do you, what do you kind of see sort of big picture? Yeah. So I, I mean, I see a few issues. Uh, I'll, you know, and I have to say I have my own opinions and and they might not always align with, you know, what others think. But I I've, I guess I form my unique opinions. But, you know, there is all this research out there that there's all these people who want to learn to hunt. Um, and I really don't believe that they're seeing this as something that's attainable. So that that's the biggest thing to me is like, how do we make hunting approachable to new audiences and how do we let them know that, you know, these these opportunities exist and. And so R3 isn't just about recruiting new hunter, but it, it comes down to like, how do we license hunters? How do we make that accessible for hunters? You know, can they read the language? You know, I'm, I'm an East Coast guy. So when I read Western regs, it's like a foreign language, but Eastern regs are foreign languages to non-hunters over here. You know, I just grew up reading those books or whatever. Yeah. And to be honest with you, I don't know many new hunters that realize a state agency exists or where you would go do that. And that's that's why a lot of our recruitment efforts have failed is we've put them on the backs of state agencies or we put them on state agency websites and and we were recruiting a lot of youth. And at the end of the day, we really weren't recruiting anybody outside of a hunting culture because that's the people we were talking to. That's the people who get those newsletters. And it's the same with NDA. Like we have to, we have to find ways to reach new audiences. Um, we get a lot of inquiries now and it's because, you know, we, we try to offer a lot of education materials. We've got our name out there in these recruitment programs and stuff, but at the end of the day, it, it, I need to do other things to recruit new hunters. They're not intrinsically members of a, an, an organization that not only, you know, looks for out for deer all across the country, but also teaches people how to manage deer and, you know, stuff like that, which is not exactly what these new audiences are looking for all the time. So um, we've got to continue to get out there and create these pathways for these new hunters. Um, a lot of people see access as a huge barrier and um, I, I'm, I don't always fall in that vein, but I understand that not all circumstances are created equal. Uh, we hosted a hunt for, um, you know, for black indigenous or people of color in New York, they may have different opportunities for access than I do. Uh, you know, at the same time, if they live in New York city, it's harder to find a place to hunt. That's obvious. Like you could hop a train for two hours and probably not still be in a good place to hunt. Um, you know, so there, there are some barriers to entry in terms of access, but for me and from a lot of the, you know, point of view, I mean, they're deer everywhere. Don't overlook the urban opportunities. I'm a big fan of crossbows and urban deer hunting for new hunters. I mean, uh, you know, we, we focused on urban deer hunting for some of our field to fork programs, but it's like, A, a lot of these places are overlooked. B, I can pick somebody up at their front door, drive them 20 minutes down the road, jump on a five acre woodlot. And you know what? The deer aren't as scared of humans. It doesn't seem like, and there's a lot of deer and it's really a good, um, you know, it's good management for the the municipality or whoever. I mean, it's just good in many a different models. So um, I think often people get caught up in like, you know, us being traditional hunters, we, we want to push what we think of hunting onto a new hunter. And it's like, they don't understand that we have these thousand acre deer camps that you have, you know, 30 stands and you sign into or whatever. Like they don't know that existed. 
being on that five acre woodlot may be the deepest immersion in nature that they've ever seen. And so we have to understand there's a lot of opportunity there. Um, but what we really have to do is kind of change the way we, we, we grade or rate a hunter or whatever, maybe like what the, the check boxes of what, it, what a good hunter consists of. Like, I hope that we include mentorship in that. And people need to understand that I'm not talking about mentoring their kids because most people have done that. I mean, we have, we don't do it as a higher rate as we used to probably in like the fifties or whatever, when there wasn't a lot of competition and everybody went hunting, but you know, we need people to be, become advocates for hunting outside of their peer groups, outside of their family. If we're only recruiting people in our own family, while we need to do that, we need to maintain our hunting numbers that way we need to diversify hunting. And there's, there's obviously all these audiences. Um, I'm one who believes like I was born a hunter. I've got a bird dog out here. I read a book when he, when I got him and trained him and he was like, what not to do to train your bird dog. And I was like, this dog has it in him. You can screw this up. But if you just kind of, you know, empower these, uh, you know, just this innate ability that, you know, is ingrained in him, like that's what it is. And I can't speak for everybody. I can only tell you what goes on in my head, but like I had a natural desire to be a hunter. And I found that in, in tons of different people over the years from, from kids to, you know, old people <laughs> to, uh you know to any walk of life i mean and, and that's the coolest thing i've seen is uh i've seen very diverse groups time and time again come together over a shared passion for like wild food and wild spaces and uh and, and a lot of diverse people can can enjoy camaraderie and community in hunting and, and that's really what it comes down to is if we want to recruit you know new generations of hunters or, or hunters that don't look like us or think like us we have we've come into hunting through some type of community and we found community in hunting whether it was like our family or our friends or whatever there, there's a reason why you're a hunter today um and it's really not to go sit in a cold deer stand and, and hopefully get a deer i mean we all love to do that but it's that camaraderie and that community that we found in hunting it's that it's, it's that daydreaming in the back of our heads i think when we're sitting at our desk or whatever but um you know they can find the daydreaming but we've we've got to extend this community and that camaraderie and, and that's what's awesome about hunting. And so um, I hope that hunters begin to kind of change their way to think, you know, I need to be a good advocate for sport, but I also need to, to pass it on. And, and people need to also understand, and I'll, I'll quit talking so much, but, you know, mentorship comes in a, a lot of different levels. Some people need multiple sits in a deer stand with somebody sitting beside them. Others just need a phone number to call if they get that shot because that's what they're hung up on is they don't have the confidence to take care of that animal after the shot but they're not going to go a field if they don't get that confidence level and it may just be like hey I i'll be there you know you call me if you get that shot you know um so mentorship comes in different levels and just sharing venison meals um sharing about hunting i think a lot of us hunters and maybe it's kind of the the second amendment fight or whatever we've we've just started to view ourselves as this is something that the public doesn't approve of, and I'm not going to talk about it to non-hunters, but it's actually very far from the case. 82% of Americans approve of hunting deer and turkey for food. So, you know, it's the 10% of us that hunt. You know, four, I said 4.5% earlier, but, you know, oddly enough, not every hunter buys a license every year. I mean, there are more hunters than that, but every any given year, there's about 4.5 million licensed hunters. But so maybe there's 10% of the U.S. population that that hunts or is really around hunting and really, you know, approves of it, even though I said 82% approve in theory. And then you got your certain percentage of, of anti-hunters, which are, I think is very small. I mean, I, I wouldn't even, I wouldn't even contend 10%, but what we're getting at here is 80-20 rule in life. 20% of us care, the 80% in the middle haven't made up their opinion yet. And that's where we have to focus. Like we need to become advocates for them, but we also need to talk about hunting to them and, and, in a responsible light. And it's just what I was talking about with like Netflix and meat eater. I mean, we're putting an approachable and a responsible hunting, fishing, you know, foraging, you know, uh, view in front of these non-hunting audiences. And, and they're saying, Hey, you know what? I, I'm kind of interested in that. And, and I understand why these people do this. And this is pretty cool. And that's all we have to worry about is like, we need to continue that process. Yeah. You talked a little bit about mentorship in there. And I think one of the tough things in a society where everyone's got two two weeks off, you know, they have families, they have obligations, is 
you know, that limited amount of time that you might get to spend in the woods, you have to give up even a sliver of that to take someone else. So it's like giving up that limited amount of time that you already have in the woods to bring someone else else along. But I think it's, you really have to look at it from a long-term game of, you know, you think about a family lineage starts with starting with two people and you see that tree branch out that person that you've given up a little bit of your time to take out could end up having that, that giant web effect as well. I think that's something we need to keep in perspective. Yeah. I mean, I just wrote a profile on a gentleman from New York city who came to this event in New York and he wrote me a thank you letter and he has an adult age daughter or, you know, not maybe not fully adult, but like he has a daughter who's, um, who's getting up there, teenager at least. And then he has a daughter, he's expecting a second daughter. And he, he wrote that, you know, you're going to create hunters out of three generations just from taking him hunting, you know, this, this one season. I mean, his, his, they're making plans for his, his other daughter to join them, I feel, next season. Um, you know, back when we started this in Athens, Georgia, um, I'll never forget uh, this, this young lady walked up to our table and she said, this is for Edwin. And then she brings her uh, boyfriend over at the time. They're now married. And, and here's Edwin. He's a Haitian immigrant. He's a Ph.D. candidate at the University of Georgia. You know, grew up picking his fruit off of trees, grew up killing chickens for dinner in Haiti, you know, knowing exactly where his food comes from. Moves to the United States, is obviously interested in this kind of stuff, but has no idea how to do it. So so we take him hunting, the, you know, his first year, which was like 2017, I guess. And at the end of the season, he wrote me a note and he says, hey, I killed five deer and I took five new people hunting. Is that good? And I was like, Edwin, I've only Mike, my season high is four. And that's about where I like to be. I mean, I only got two deer this year and that's fine. But when before, you know, COVID and we don't we're not as social as we used to be. I used to, you know, share a couple of deer here and there. So I'd like to harvest about four. But I was like, Edwin, I've never killed uh, five deer in a season. And. Um, you know, honestly, like he wrote me an email the next season and he mentored for us the next year in our organized program, but he took another five hunters afield. Like he's a better advocate. He, he, you know, he walks in circles that I don't walk in. So like, that's, that's the premise here is like, let's do a good job and let's recruit new hunters, uh, who want to learn for the right reasons and make sure we're identifying those who don't come from hunting families or hunting backgrounds and let's give them what they need to know because an adult has a checkbook, a calendar, a car, whatever, and they fill it when they want to. So we taught Edwin how to hunt, you know, in early September in the Georgia season. And that's another thing. And you kind of hit on that a minute ago, like different areas of the country have more time to hunt. And so for me sitting in the Southeast, like it, it's, it's for me to say, oh, you know, access is an issue. Like we've got from like September 10th, 15th to January 1st to shoot deer with bows and arrows and crossbows. So you know, asking somebody for a weekend of their time and that versus like a two weeks gun season in Michigan or whatever. I mean, that's, that's a lot bigger ask. So uh, I want to make clear there, there are other barriers or changes around the country, but anyway, um, you know, we taught Edwin to hunt in, in early September, we were asking for the second weekend of bow season. So we were asking our mentors to share not only their knowledge and stuff, but we were asking them to share their deer stance, trying to create a sustainable program where we were just kind of, sourcing hunters who are willing to take on a new hunter and we were pairing them and doing the trainings and education that kind of stuff but anyway second weekend of both season we took edwin hunting and then he hunted on his own uh and and harvested five deer and took five other people hunting i mean they can do that immediately and that's what kids can't do um and if we want to teach a kid to hunt we might as well teach their parent like avery i was telling you about because he's going to take his daughter next year and now she'll have a checkbook and a car and a calendar they can promote her hunting, you know, that he's filling out for her. So, um, I mean, there's all these different ways to do it, but that's, that's why we focused on adults and that's why we've kind of pushed that, but we can, we can create these advocates that can do more for us. And really like we're trying to create hunters and seed them in the different circles and hopefully it'll create a hunting community there as well. And, and we've seen it. So what's the, you talked a little bit about youth there at the end. What is the NDA strategy for youth involvement? in hunting is there a network of hunting mentors that, that you guys post and recruit or, or what does that look like at the nda so i mean we've been doing this you know the nda has been around since 1988 you know obviously the quality deer management association and name uh until just a couple of years ago but um 
you know, we have been doing hunts of all different types for decades since well before I got to QDMA. And so we still do as many youth hunts as we do field to forks. I mean, our, our volunteer branches, you know, we have a branch structure, volunteer, you know, driven, and we still host a number of youth hunts. Our, our event of the year this year, um, you know, branch event of the year was a youth hunt in South Carolina. Um, so we still do uh, push that, promote it. We support it. We support them with insurance, educational resources, you know, orange hats invest, you know, that kind of stuff. So we, we, we have incentive programs for our branches to host new hunters, however they want to. We still do a number of, you know, veteran hunts, military appreciation hunts, that kind of stuff. So it's not that we've said no cancel this, like, but we, do, I do believe, and, and we believe like, we think there's a better direction. And what, that's what we're trying to do is we're focusing on the most efficient audiences. Um, you know, if, if our branches still want to take youth hunting and, and we still obviously promote it and support it, uh, we try to get them to involve the parent and create, you know, ways to do it. We, we offer them, you know, we use Google surveys even to, to judge these adults versus kids. So we can see, you know, do they have immediate family members hunt? Do they have friends who hunt? Um, you know, because as I said earlier, like, we just really struggled as hunting groups to to actually get in front of non-hunting audiences. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm talking to our, you know, 50,000 members and I'm like, hey, we've got a national youth hunt, nominate some hunters. And it's like, well, my niece, Sally, would love to learn to deer hunt, but the uncle who's nominating her is a member of a club and has, you know, so it's like, we shouldn't be taking Sally hunting. Her uncle needs to be taking her hunting, you know? So, mm-hmm. so we're just trying to, you know, actually make sure that we're getting, you know, efficient audiences, but getting audiences that, that aren't going to be hunting anyway. Um, you know, if, if this kid's growing up in a hunting family, they, that even their sibling might not hunt, but their, their grandfather hunts and we create a hunter out of them. Heck yeah. It's another licensed buyer. It's another supporter, but they're still growing up around that hunting culture. And I, I just hope that they can be mentored with internally within that group, we need to focus on those that are totally out there. And, and I run into them day and day again. I don't know any, I don't have any family who hunts. I don't know anybody who hunts. I need some help. And, and mm-hmm. so that's really what we're trying to focus on. That makes sense. Is there any sort of uh, directional things you guys can do as far as like creating a network of maybe landowners that would like to host some of these hunts? Cause I feel like that's one of the main issues that I run into. It's like, Okay, I'd love to take you hunting. Oklahoma, I live in Texas now. I mainly hunt in Oklahoma. We have a two-week rifle season, which one week is during Thanksgiving. So there goes, I have, you know, 95% of my season, I, I can't take anybody. And if I had that access to maybe a landowner that was willing to put on some of these hunts, you know, to bring five people out and, and manage the doe herd, like how do you guys manage um, those relationships? And is there like a network of people that kind of want to host these things. Cause you know, to have any sort of party, you need to have a host. Oh, no doubt. No doubt. So yeah, we do, uh, you know, we're fortunate enough that, you know, just in the way that our organization said, you know, not people usually assume like most of our members are landowners. It's not true. Um, you know, we, we do have a more avid deer hunting membership base because of, you know, what we teach and, and what we do. But so we're fortunate that we do have a number of landowners in our membership base and we have a lot of, uh, members who are willing to open up access for this kind of stuff. We've been very fortunate there. Um, we have a couple of different sign-up links that kind of work outside of that. Not not so much looking for land, but we have like a mentor sign-up and a new hunter sign-up. So if somebody's willing to mentor or, you know, it really started with that new hunter because we get a lot of those too. And it, it really is going to kind of that crux is can we recruit the mentors to take the new hunter? So so we've got both of those and, and they work into, it looks like you're filling out your regular like membership information, but we're, we're pinning people on maps and we're also providing, you know, you know, our educational resources for the new hunters and that kind of stuff. And, um, but we are, you know, building these databases, we're pinning people on maps and we're, and we're trying to match them and notify them of organized program or property opportunities, that kind of stuff as they come about. So we are doing that. We also partner with a lot of, other organizations, groups, um, state agency. Um, I, I prefer to have the state agency as a partner of any program we do, but we often, we've, we've found a lot of access in national wildlife refuges that are traditionally not hunted, which I love. You know, I love finding that access, creating access. Um, I, I hate it when people think we're taking away access for new hunters, and, and we're usually not. Um, but we, we found a number of opportunities 
uh, to open up properties for hunting uh, in organized methods like that. And so that's been really cool. Um, but we, yeah, we're always looking for new properties. I find, um, you know, we, we find the properties. It's, it's really finding the, the people to help put together the programs that are really the um, kind of the linchpin. But yeah, we're, we're always trying to help that. And um, so we do, you know, as I mentioned or, earlier, we offer these resources to our organized branches and also other field to fork events. Like every, you know, I realized early and I was surprised, you know, it was just like work for me to go on stage and be like, Hey, y'all want to learn like to deer hunt to 12 people in a classroom. Like I'll, I'll teach you to deer hunt. It's, it's not a big deal. Like this is easy, you know, they're out there, go get them. Um, but like even a, even a super avid hunter didn't want to stand in front of 12 non hunters and teach them how to deer hunt. They're like, I, I don't know how to do that. I'm like, what do you mean? You don't know how to do it. You're out there managing these deer over here. You're getting like a few a year. You, we all know how to do it, but mm-hmm. it, it was one of the, it was like, like what I'm telling you, I believe all these like potential hunters are out there and they're just not entertaining the idea. They're finding it like hunting is daunting, you know? Well, these, these current hunters were finding like standing up in front of 12 non hunters is daunting to teach them how to hunt. So, so we, um, you know, we created like PowerPoint set PowerPoints originally, but just in business or whatever, we created a deer hunting 101 course uh, with Calcomy who also does, you know, deer hunting online or excuse me, your online hunter education. So um, we now offer to every one of our field of fork programs and participants, they get free online hunter education and they get access to our deer hunting 101 online course, which is both on through Calcomy. And we're doing that as a prerequisite at home education. So we're, we've pulled the, the educational component off of the volunteers. And we're really so. So now it's really just like, hey, can you create a deer camp and can you host X amount of new hunters? I mean, that's what we're asking you to do. And that's really what we're doing. And that's when we get down these replication things, people always get caught up in like, oh, I bet there's all this classroom time and like, even when we started Field to Fork, we did uh, six hours of kind of, you know, af- we were doing it after work in the evenings before deer season. But we were we were doing two, three hour sessions and half of that time was just shooting crossbows and eating venison meals. And hell, we were serving adult beverages when the crossbows were put up. It, yeah, we were teaching people an intro to hunting, a, a deer bio primer about hunting approaches. We took them on a walk around to show them scrapes and deer, different deer stands and why this deer stands there or whatever. But it, it, you don't learn to deer hunt in a classroom. You never go learn how to deer hunt a workshop. Like mm-hmm. I, I need, I need the mentors to take them a field and teach them a field and let them learn how to become a hunter through hunting. Um, but we do offer a lot of good educational resources. And so to everyone listening, if there's potential hunters or whatever, you know, those are, those are behind paywalls typically. And we offer them to our, our participants, but we offer a lot of that same content free. So we have a free ebook, we have a podcast, the How to Hunt Deer podcast. We have a Deer Hunting 101 tab on our website. And, and I'll just go ahead and tell you, most of that content is very similar. So you can find it free on our avenues as well. But we have a one-on-one course, and we also give them, uh, you know, hunter education online to try to get them up to speed. But, um, you know, we uh, we created the ebook, which became the course, because the number one question after people took online hunter education and I, I get derogatory, whatever, and say, you know, you taught me not to, you know, shoot my buddy or whatever. And they obviously didn't say that. But the question is, where do I learn to deer hunt? Like, this is great. Uh, great. Safety is great. But I, I thought you were going to teach me to hunt deer. Like, that's mm-hmm. what I meant. So that's that's why we actually wrote an e- that ebook back in the day. And then we created an online course uh, and we're the first to do so. But the number one question from Hunter, edu- ed- Hunter Education graduates is where do I learn to hunt deer? Yeah, no, that's, I love that you guys have those resources, but similar to what you're saying, I think mentors is one of the biggest pieces of this, this whole puzzle. I mean, I, I think back to, to my childhood, having adults that not only know the safety, but also know the strategy and the, the, how the ta- how to tactically go and harvest a deer, what's important to, to doing that. So, I mean, I, I think mentors are such a big piece of this puzzle. And we have to have people willing to give up their time to create this environment where people are not only safe, but they actually learn how to deer hunt so they can pass that on. Absolutely. I mean, there's a couple things there and, and I hinted at it earlier, but I really, I believe creating a hunter comes down to building confidence and it's two confidence levels. It's one, can I take care of that animal if I get the shot? 
because that's just a, it's a huge daunting hang up in, in someone's head and, and, you know, all power to them. Cause you know, these people want to be responsible, ethical hunters. That's something they need to be confident in. And it's hard to gain that confidence or even learn how to do it um, on YouTube or whatever. I mean, it really is. That's one of those things you really need to see in person and you get your hands dirty. But, you know, I always tell people like the old adage, like there's a hundred ways to skin a cat. Like I, I hardly know a hunter that does it the same way as another hunter. I mean, everybody that has a little bit different way that they go about it or whatever, and you really can't mess it up. It's daunting. And that's one of my favorite comments we get. You know, people are always like, man, that was a lot easier than I thought it was going to be, you know, the hunting to the cleaning. So, so we've got to build that confidence level. The second confidence level and, and really the most important part is like, what, what actually makes a hunter? Like when, when are you a hunter? I mean, do you have to be successful to be a hunter? I, I don't think so. But like you're a hunter when you decide that you're a hunter, when you say this is something I can do and I'm going to do it. Like you don't have to be successful at that point. But what that is, is that's confidence. That All that is is saying I can do this shit and I'm going to do it. Mm-hmm. And and so like that's all we're doing in that mentor. Like it's hard to get there without that mentor. And that mentor doesn't have to be on for 10 hours that season or 30 hours that season sometimes. And sometimes it does take a little more help. Some people just need a little more guidance, but at the end of the day, you're just trying to get that person to that confidence level. And, um, you know, we've done these programs that lasted for whole seasons. I've done programs where we only had three or four days to get it done and you can do it both ways. I mean, you can really build that confidence in someone and really just kind of push them and empower them to do this. And and they're going to realize like they can do it. Yeah. I mean, Um, I think the mentor piece is, is really important there, like what you're saying, because I've built all my confidence in hunting through failing, through missing, through making an unethical shot, through having to deal with um, walking up on a deer that's maybe still alive. And like, I feel like as a new hunter without that mentor, that would have absolutely crushed me and, and sent me to purgatory of hunting where I don't want to try this again, you know? Well, you know, I went uh, hunting. We were given the back 40 property from Meat Eater. And so we went and joined Mark Kenyon out there for a doe hunt last year, late December, a year before last. And we got a camera crew and it's cold. I don't hunt in the snow like that much. And um, I don't even know what happened. I must have popped the stomach with the tip of my gut hook on the top of the knife. Like when I was reaching in to cut the windpipe, I must have just barely hit it with that little corner of the gut hook on the back of the knife. But somehow, I mean, I just had to like one of the geyserous gutting jobs I've ever seen. And this is, I got camera guys here and there, Mark Kenyon, and you know, and I'm like, this is great. Like I, I, he, he didn't use the footage. And I was like, Mark, I, I wouldn't have been, you know, I would have been fine if you did. I, I want new hunters to realize that I screw up every once in a while and you can too. That meat's still fine. It still went to the dinner table, you know, mm-hmm. like, um, it, it's not. And then, I mean, lastly, I think this biggest thing about mentorship is, it, is on the mentor. And like, this is hugely rewarding. You know, I've always tried to tell people and, and I firmly believe it. Like these hunts may be your most rewarding hunts. We all love to be successful ourselves. Um, but we found that this passion, you know, everybody remembers the first their first year and you can be a part of someone else's. And honestly, I get more jacked up sitting shotgun or whatever, you know, co-pilot whatever you want to call it. Like I shake more when I'm sitting beside the hunter in the stand than I do when I'm hunting. I I think it's a, it's a better experience. I enjoy witnessing it all from the outside than being, you know, the one who's got that tunnel vision as the, as the hunter. And, you know, we all know a good hunter doesn't get tunnel vision, but maybe sometimes we do. Um, But, you know, like these are rewarding hunts, Um, you know, time and time again, the experience we've seen is, that, you know, these current hunters that are mentoring for us, they're valued. Like they, their stock goes up when they enter that room, when they, they walk taller in these rooms because they realize that these people that might not be in their peer, peer group might, might be, you know, they can find common ground, but what they can really get is like that this new hunter values their knowledge, wants their knowledge, you know, and, and, and so it's just like symbiotic relationship of people, the new hunter, you know, is looking to that mentor to kind of for help that mentor feels valued. They're walking a little taller and then they're going a field forming these friendships and, and, you know, they're just, they're experiencing deer camp uh, with another, you know, a new person or whatever. And it's, it's just fun. I mean, 
that's the end of the day, it's fun. And so, I mean, I sat in the deer stand with a few new hunters this year. Uh, you know, uh, I, I, I organize a lot of programs too, where I don't actually like, you know, mentor or whatever, but I've, I've been fortunate enough to, you know, get a few new hunters out this fall. And I mean, I, and I shot a couple deer myself, but I, I really had more fun, you know, taking those new hunters afield and watching it progress through their eyes. And so I think hunters need to realize that if you, if you, you know, if you want to get jacked up like you did, you know, when you were a kid or, or you just getting into hunting, uh, go sit with a new hunter and get them their first year, you know, watch them, watch their excitement, be a part of it. Yeah. I know that's so, that's so true because I can remember a story where I took my, my buddy, Nathan, who grew up in Oklahoma, which is very rural, but n had never been hunting before. And we went up to a WMA about an hour, uh, north of Oklahoma state where we were going to school at the time. And we, we lugged a ground line, like a half mile back in the corner of this, uh, this Milo field and set it all up when it was a muzzleloader hunt. He bought his licenses and everything. And we sat out there and it was hot that day. And all we did, all we saw was one group of pigs that came across this little, this little clearing. He shot at a pig and missed it with a muzzleloader. And he was like, and I was like, man, I, I, I think we missed Nathan. And we went out there and looked and he was like, dude, I don't care. This is awesome. He's like, he's like, I want to do this again. And I was like, Oh, that's, that's the best attitude I've ever seen out of someone that, that just missed. It was, but it was awesome just to see that excitement through his eyes. Oh yeah. And I mean, I, I may be biased, but I, I believe that like taking that new adult hunter is a heck of a lot more fun. And like, you can just connect and, and um, I mean, I've taken plenty of kids hunting over the years and that's fun too, but just, you know, being able to have that adult beverage when the, the guns or bows are put away, um, you know, sharing the meals, that kind of stuff. I just find it um, hugely rewarding. And, and uh, you know, again, those, those adults we're taking will, will mentor their kids, mentor their friends. I mean, almost immediately, it's amazing how quickly they'll either be a field for themselves or they'll, they'll um, and they'll take others with them because they understand the value of that helping hand. Um, yeah. We, we've just had a lot of fun doing this and, you know, some of our programs that are more community based and have been running for years, you have all these graduates. So you just have a group of 50 or 100 people that have been through the program or mentored for the program or whatnot. And, um, you know, we've, we've had guys build classrooms on their property and like new skinning sheds and stuff so they can host filled the forks better on their property. And I mean, it, it's just been a ton of fun. Um, but really, all it is, is it's extending deer camp and and, you know, what we love about hunting uh, to a to a new group. And I mean, honestly, then I'll be all like I, I, I talk about this a lot and I, I've, I've never seen it in fruition. But if we wanted to solve the hunter recruitment problem, you know, in my mind, what would be successful would just be like a dinner group. Like and that's that's kind of where some of these programs go, because they keep this social experience in this community alive. And we have like hidden Facebook groups or whatever, for, you know, you know, you know, email chains where people stay in touch and ask questions. But, you know, what we're looking at here is like a rotary club for deer or like a, a dinner crew for deer. Like if, if we just in our communities, if we set up at like a local restaurant and we said, hey, like we're deer hunters, and we're going to meet for dinner once a month and, or breakfast or lunch or whatever. Like, you know, I think of these Kiwanis groups and these rotary groups that I've been a part of or I know people who are. Like, why don't we have a deer hunting group that, hey, we're, we have dinner at this place, everything, and maybe we have a little education or whatever like they do. They always have an educational component. But you know what? If you want to learn about deer, deer hunting, you want to do it, like, come come here. This is where you need to find us. I mean, that's that's really what we're trying to do is get hunters to be known and where do you find us and that kind of stuff. But I think, you know, it's just it's just creating that community and creating a, an approachable front for, for newcomers to find us. Um but I, I hope more and more hunters realize that, hey, we need you, you know, uh, creating more hunters, being a good advocate for hunting. Uh, and you can do this just by sharing your story, sharing a meal or two. You, you know, it, it can be as heavy a lift as you want to take it. But um, being a good advocate for hunting doesn't take that much. No, no. I mean, it's such a communal thing to participate in. I mean, some of the most deep and meaningful relationships that I have just started off with just mutual love of the outdoors and mm -hmm. it's been really fun to sit back and watch you guys do the field to forks and, and take the new people out. And I watch all the educational content and then eventually get to see on Instagram stories, these people harvesting deer and getting to consume it. But uh, it's been really fun to watch you guys and 
the, the programs that you guys are putting on, but for people that want to connect with you or the NDA, how do, how do they do that? Deerassociation.com. Um, you can find under the hunting tab, you can find, uh, you know, there's a field to fork tab. It's littered with my email, but my email is just Hank at deerassociation.com. If anybody has any questions, comments, concerns, feel free to hit me up directly, but deerassociation.com. And speaking of, those videos, yeah, you can find some highlights from the Field of Forks, like on our Instagram stories. We're um, going to be putting out a, a video with uh, meat exclamation point here soon. We hosted a Field of Fork for them. Uh, you know, we've done a number of industry Field of Forks, even realized like, hey, there. this was when we were QDMA, but there, I had colleagues in our own building. Like that's how many potential hunters we're walking by every day and we're not inviting them. Um, I'll never forget one of the first field to four group classes we recruited a guy named Rod came in. He was like a superintendent or whatever for local roofing company. He said, there's eight offices in the hall and they all have deer heads hanging in them except mine. And nobody's ever invited me hunting. And he was, mm. he was at our classroom that day. And I'm like, shit, what are we doing? You know, <laughs> like we got to get these people in there. But, um, but anyway, um, you know, we hosted them for our colleagues because they were saying, hey, I, I hear what you're doing back there. I'm seeing about it. I'm reading about it. I want to do that, too. So we just we hosted one for for our colleagues. And then we've hosted them for Ruger, Six Hour, Daniel Defense, Vortex Optics. I mean, all these industries are, are you know, people, groups, companies in our industry that have these uh, hunters and non-hunters in them. And, and some of the coolest ones we did, like Vortex we sent out a survey to their entire staff said, are you a hunter? Yes or no. Uh, and if they said yes, we said, would you be willing to mentor a new hunter? If they said no, we said, would you like to learn? I mean, it's like sustainable where there's, there's, you know, probably most, not most more than more of their employees are hunters than not hunters, but it's mm -hmm. still, uh, it's probably 60, 40. It's not, it's way less than you would think. And so, um, you know, how cool is it to like pair colleagues up and say, Hey, y'all are going to go hunt. And, and as a, as a company, we we're going to support this and promote it and push it. And so we did that. So you can expect a video from that, but we're putting out some video from meat this week. We also filmed that New York program. I mentioned, we filmed this whole back 40 to fork uh, segment that we've done with meat eater on the back 40 and ran a, a, a community-based field of fork there. So we've got a lot of content coming out. Um, so keep your eye out for there, but you can keep up with us on, you know, social media or other things like Deer Association or our website, deerassociation.com. Cool. That sounds awesome. Well, I appreciate you taking the time today to just jump on the podcast. I really enjoyed the conversation and we'll, we'll do it again sometime. Hey, I really appreciate you having me. Hey guys, appreciate the listen to the Hunter's Advantage podcast. 